Welcome to the Polymer Science Podcast. I am Dr. Alicia Buertes. And I'm Jacob Schechtman. In this podcast, we'll be speaking to researchers from around the world and talk to them about how their work is improving our daily lives. I hope you enjoy our conversation and that you learn something new. It is called All Impulse Intelligence in Belgium. Thomas Thomas from Hazard University. Magna cum laude from He graduated economics and nanotechnology specialization in bioelectronics with a specialized with a specialization in biomedical sciences and a master's degree in gym where he obtained he originally comes from Belgium Basel at the University of Nanoanalytics for cellular imaging and the Centred Paul Scherer Institute and Nanotechnology at the between the Laboratory of Micro the project is a collaborative the project is collaborative diseases of neurodegenerative physiological of elucidating pathos which would be capable of nanofluidic devices working on the development of more specifically his wishes more specifically relevant acting techniques with biomedical at the art nanofabrication science institute PhD student at the Swiss Nan Thomas is a peer cozy at the moment although I apologize for the background the rain behind me so you can hear the sounds of Thomas Mortel Thomas Welcome Thomas Mortelmans. I just want to make sure that I'm saying your surname correctly. Yeah. I actually want to say it in an Afrikaans accent. Mortelmans, right? Mortelmans, you can also say Mortal. it like that, yeah. Because okay. if you try to say it in an English accent, it's like Mortelmans. Mortelmans, <laughs> <Okay>. yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> but you, you're from South Africa originally. South Africa. Oh, nice. Yeah. yeah. And I, are you a uh, German? Uh, no, Belgium actually. Belgium. Uh, All right. Belgium, awesome. yeah. Before we even delve into your work, your PhD work, um, which is quite interesting and I mean, I think the listeners are going to really appreciate learning more about nanofluidic devices. But um, I first need to, when I read up about um, you and your research, I came across this part where you are, you have developed mark- and marketed uh, a product called Cloudy Gens. Yeah. Um, which is a, a gin in Belgium uh, yeah. that you created. Can you please tell me a bit more about that? Because that's really exciting and I, I find it very interesting. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, when if I want to talk about the gin, I sort of have to talk about, of course, how it started. And um, actually, it's a bit of a funny story. Like, I did my bachelor's degree at the University of Hasselt in Belgium, which is a relatively small university close to the border with the Netherlands. And there, I mean, in biomedical sciences, you get taught about the metabolism and how the body gets energy out of nutrients and so on. And the professor at some point was talking about yeast having a possibility to do anaerobic uh, fermentation, anaerobic metabolism. And what this meant, what he's saying is, okay, if the yeast has to get energy out of sugar, for example, in in an environment where there's no oxygen, it will sort of make ethanol as a byproduct. So me as a, as a bachelor student, I was thinking, so wait, you're telling me if I put baker's yeast together with plain <laughs> sugar, <laughs> I will get alcohol. <laughs> and for me, this sounded super exciting. So that's how it started off, like a, like a small, small uh, science experiment. Typical I, student science experiment. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Oh, um, I love it. Uh, and that's how I sort of got into it and... and 
after a while this this um got actually quite optimized i got quite good at it but the, the, i mean of course it was just fermented sugar that was not really a taste <laughs> and at the time when i was doing this it was summer and in belgium gin is quite popular i mean if if it's sunny outside the gin tonic yeah. is sort of the the it go-to drink a popular one yeah <laughs> exactly um and i was thinking okay maybe if it, it, it could it wasn't so hard to make alcohol in the first place place but can i make something tasty out of it now so that's when i started to look up okay how is a gin made what's in there and what i found out is okay mainly it's uh, like juniper berry and uh, coriander but except oh, for yes. that you're um, you're free to do whatever you want i mean those two have to be in there but the rest you can do whatever mm. and what i decided to do is okay i actually come from a very um, like a region in belgium where um, there's quite some like uh, uh, fruit farms, like pears, apples and so on. And I was thinking, okay, maybe I can do something with this. So I, I took some Yoda gold apples, mixed it together with the juniper berries and the coriander and actually made this um, cloudy uh, apple flavored gin. And the reason why it's called cloudy I want, uh, is because it's non-filtered. I mean, if you dilute it, it sort of becomes cloudy because all, all of these oils from, from the herbs they sort of don't do not solubilize well and then you get a cloudy cloudy look okay that makes um, sense. and to, to get it to market we collaborated with uh, with a um, like a commercial distillery and they made it uh, according to my recipe and they've been selling it now uh, well we've been selling it through this through, through all inclusive which is a, an event agency in Belgium to hotels and restaurants and and bars and speciality stores but I mean now with COVID uh, the bars and the, the restaurants are not so much so much involved anymore, regrettably. Oh, um, that will come back, don't worry. Oh, yeah, that's, so, <laughs> that's awesome. So I, I need to actually like uh, look up the, the label and things like that, but yeah. it's, it's something very, very, very cool. And yes. you say you're, you're developing more flavors or are you, uh, is, are you happy with the current product as it is? So at the moment, because I'm in Switzerland for the PhD, I'm not doing much more gin making oh, yes, actually. Of course, I'm, um, I'm assuming it takes a lot of time as well yeah, to but be it, part of that marketing strategy and developing everything. Yeah, so it was a, oh, it was an interesting journey actually. I mean, because you have to go from th- something scientific and then you sort of have to uh, lay, like you have to do the marketing, you have to develop labels, <laughs> you have to come up with a name, a description, you have to go through all the right food certifications as well. I mean, it was uh, quite interesting. It's quite a character building that, you're, that you've gone through in such a short time, having to learn all that stuff in such a short time and you know becoming skilled and expert in that. Very cool. Yeah, but I mean, the first, <laughs> the first time I went into a, sto- into a store, like a gin speciality store to sell a bottle, yeah, it was... Um, it was also something I had to learn because I mean, in the end, I was <laughs> it was doing more sciences and not sales. So it was yeah. a, it was a, it was a it was a cool experience, that for sure. Yeah, no, that's cool. Um, so off to your PhD work now. Um, yeah. Your work has been focused around nanoscience and um, yes. and developing yeah. nanofluidic devices. Um, so. Uh, for the people that don't know what nanofluidic devices are, can you maybe just yeah. explain what that is and how yeah. it's used? So nanofluidics for me is, is um, or nanofluidic devices or devices that sort of 
manipulates fluid on a nanoscale. And with nanoscale, I mean 100 nanometers or less. Um, so in this sense, in this domain where things are so small, uh, a lot of things start to play a role which do not play a role on the micro or millimeter scale. So you have electrostatic charges, you have uh, roughnesses, and even nano roughnesses sort of come into play because it's a, it's a whole different regime. Um, and I mean, it's also uh, a, it's a bit different than microfluidics because microfluidics, it's really situated on more 10 micrometer, 100 micrometer scales. So you're, you're playing with different parameters in this sense. Um, I think that okay. that's the most, most important takeaway. Um, awesome. So what was the main aim for the development of this specific nanofluidic device that you made for mm -hmm. your PhD? So actually, um, I'm doing my PhD at the Swiss Nanoscience Institute. Um, and this is an institute at the University of Basel uh, in Switzerland. And um, these, the positions they have there they sort of have to be situated on the interface of two scientific disciplines. So you cannot do a PhD only in physics. It has to be sort of interdisciplinary. And uh, the project I applied to, because they're all pre-funded positions, uh, the aim was to make this nanofluidic device, so to use nanotechnology in this sense, but then for biomedical sciences to, to look uh, more specifically into how brain cells uh, change or things inside brain, brain cells uh, in people that have Parkinson's. So oh. in the end, we want to make a nanofluidic device that's able to say something about uh, the subcellular parts uh, in the brain cells of Parkinson affected people. So that's sort of the main goal of the, of the device wow. in this sense. That's awesome. So uh, these materials that, or the device, what type of materials do you use to develop this device? That's, that's actually a very interesting question. I, I like that question quite a lot because if you talk about microfluidics or nanofluidics or fluidics in general, people, they immediately think about PDMS, which is um, yeah, a um, cost-effective way of making these devices, right? I mean, it's... Okay. Um, it's uh, easy and straightforward, but PDMS, it's an, an elastomer, which means it's, um, well, to put it plainly, squishy. <laughs> it's, not, uh, it's not very hard, it's not very rigid. But you really, if you do nanofluidics, you're in this range of 100 nanometers more or less, give or take. And if you then have a material or a device made out of the elastic material, if you apply some pressure, you're changing the entire landscape of the, of the device. So what we were using or what we went to uh, as a device, was a thermoplastic material, which is a bit more rigid. Um, is, uh, it's polymethyl methacrylate, so PMMA. And I think more commonly known as plexiglass, uh, right? And the idea behind this is that um, it's still cost-effective because, I mean, plexiglass, it's produced uh, quite a lot. Uh, the fabrication methods are quite well established. And we can use um, quite nicely upscaling techniques that um, hot emboss uh, our devices. So they melt this thermoplastic and then apply quite a lot of pressure uh, to it to actually imprint uh, the device into this thermoplastic material. Mm -hmm. And it's a lot more rigid and therefore we are more sure that our nanoscale features are retained in the way uh, that they were intended to, to be. Awesome, wow. 
Um, so, okay, so you've kind of, you've already explained why you chose the material, so I'm just yeah. going to skip over that, unless there's anything else you would like to add, why you I, selected these materials and specific to their characteristics, other than, you know, that they're a little bit less squishy, <laughs> all that stuff well, that you just mentioned. All, <laughs> I, would <say> it's, <laughs> I would also say, I think it's also important, I mean, these are transparent materials in the end, so that's also a very important uh, characteristic of, of, yeah. of the material. Are these materials or this device specifically, uh, can it be reused or is it in some way environmentally friendly or is there like a way to make it environmentally friendly? That's actually also a good question. So regrettably at this point it's not reusable. And I mean it's because we're using these devices for one specific experiment and once you use those devices for that experiment, uh, there are quite some contaminants in the sense there might be some buffer or some biological protein sticking to the walls mm. of this device and therefore to, you cannot reuse it. I mean also to clean would not make uh, much sense, it would take too much um, solvents and too much equipment to actually do so. Um, I mean PMMA is not toxic to the environment so it doesn't really dissolve in water, I mean if it, uh, so it's not leaking into any water supplies or whatever if you dispose of it in a, in a non-intended way and it's recyclable it's so you, uh, if you dispose of it the way it's intended to be disposed of it, sh it shouldn't be a problem so it's 100% recyclable but it's not and it's not um, if I'm not mistaken it's not biodegradable either so it does have okay. to be recycled you cannot leave it um, around the yeah. nature can you tell me a bit more about the grace grayscale lithography and how it was used to develop the nanofluidic devices. I, I did some studies on, on grayscale lithography, yes. Um, but maybe I can, because when I was um, reading this question, I was thinking maybe I can tell something more about lithography to begin with before specifying what grayscale lithography is. So, right, yes, that would um, be great. My, one of my, my um, co-supervisors is actually Greek and he always likes to say that the Greeks invented every uh, meaningful word. So actually I would like to maybe say this as well, like lithography is a Greek word. It's, uh, it's composed of like lithos, which means, um, lithos I think means stone and graphy means to write. But that's also the way it started off. So I, I looked up this a bit. So actually the first lithography they did was that they used animal fat or just fat on a stone. Okay. And then they put this stone into an acidic solution. And everywhere where there was uh, no fat, this acidic solution sort of destroyed the stone. So that's why lithography, like to write in a stone, it actually comes from this. Wow, this, that's um, really interesting. So people can try lithography at their home if they have ducks actually, or something. I think so. I mean, there should be some ways to do it, to do it at your home. Um, uh, but then on a, on a very broad scale, I would say. Yeah? Um, yes. But yeah, ancient no, Greek lithography. <laughs> ancient Greek lithography, exactly. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no lithography nowadays. It's a bit more um, advanced than I would say putting fat on fat on a stone. <laughs> and the way we are doing this thing now is actually we're still writing or we're still trying to structure material in some way. And the way we go about this now is actually that we're using mostly electrons or photons to expose a certain region of either an electron or photon sensitive material. And um, what this, I'll just take one example, what this can for example do is if you expose a material with electrons, 
you change its solubility in a certain solution. And the certain solution in the field we call a developer. So in essence, you take electrons, you expose a certain material with them, uh, and then you put this material into a certain solution, and then you remove the exposed region because its solubility is changed okay. upon exposure. Now, lithography, most of the time, it's quite binary in the sense that all the regions that are exposed are removed in the solution. So that's what people want to create transistors, to, take, to, to create quantum computers. You always have these binary uh, patterning methods. Now, for grayscale lithography, this is a bit different because we uh, have actually everything in between. We don't have a zero or we don't have a one, so there's nothing binary about it. In the sense that we, we are making our system or we are patterning this electron sensitive material in such a way that we are uh, removing more or less at certain positions. So you can actually have uh, a way of varying the topography in the sense that you're, okay. um, for example, if you're exposing at one spot, you're exposing with quite a lot of electrons, so a high dose, you're mm -hmm. removing more material there. And in another uh, spot where you expose less, you're removing less material. And because of it, this difference, you actually create topography variations. Hmm. I mean, I should say, with the exposure, it does not really remove the material. It's the development step. So this uh, putting it in the solution that removes the material. Oh, I see. Um, yeah. And oh, the reason wow. why we're using it for nanofluidics, and specifically, I've mentioned it a couple of times already, uh, we're using electrons because we want to have high resolution in the X and Y axis, so lateral resolution. And to do that, you have, well, you mostly use electron beam lithography, they call it. Um, okay. And that's why we want to use it for nano. But then for the grayscale part, we actually use a dose modulated electron beam. So we're combining the high resolution from the electron beam together with a grayscale exposure procedure. Oh, wow. Well, that's very interesting. I think there's a few students that um, might be like perking their ears right now to learn more about this. Um, do you, uh, how did you come across lithography in your postgraduate studies? What made you decide to go into this uh, direction? Um, so I mean to, to, well, to make, to in the PhD, of course, I needed this technique to make the device. Um, and of course, I mean, if you go towards techniques where you can vary uh, the Z height and uh, the X and Y, like the lateral dimensions with nano scale precision, it's sort of evident that you go towards a grayscale electron beam uh, lithography. But to be honest, um, like my background before doing my PhD, it's more it was more in biomedical sciences. I mean, I did a bachelor's in biomedical sciences and then later um, a master's in bioelectronics and nanotechnology, but never very fabrication heavy. So not very nanofabrication heavy. Mm -hmm. So uh, getting into the postgraduate, I also had to learn quite a lot of techniques, to, uh, learn how all these systems work. And to be honest, I mean, grayscale ebermythography is still a field where not many people have touched upon. I mean, there are a couple of publications mm -hmm. out there, um, but just, I mean, I, I published something last year uh, where we studied uh, very basic behaviors of electron beam resists to actually get the precision we need uh, uh, in the z-axis. And I mean, there's not so much out there yet uh, within yes. this within this. Uh, that's field. why that's why I'm ask, asking because I um, 
I don't really hear much about that. And I, I, specifically in, during my postgraduate, I didn't really come across that uh, when speaking to other postgraduate students in my university in, in the chemistry and polymer science and engineering fields. So very, very interesting. Um, uh, so the next question I just wanted to ask you is how does this method uh, that you, you mentioned a few methods now, how do they compare to the other 3D topographic material structuring techniques that you've mentioned now? I think you did mention this, but just to make it more clear for anybody yeah. who needs to choose between these directions and which way to go, how do you weigh the advantages and disadvantages and how did you decide that the grayscale lithography is the best method for the job? Uh, yeah, so for the topo like the three-dimensional topography, I mean, there are quite a lot of options out there, I would say. I mean, yeah. uh, I it really depends on your application. So, for example, uh, what I a, a method I really like and I find super fancy is this two-photon polymerization. It's, it's, uh, it's uh, quite, quite a nice technique. So, you have two lasers, which sort of, um, with a coinciding focal point. Okay. And in this focal point of these two lasers, you have a very high photon density. Um, wow. And this, what this actually means that is you have one voxel, so one volume pixel, where the density of the photons is so high that it actually can cause only at this position some chemical changes. And the wow. cool thing is, is that you can move this voxel, so you can move this focal point around in the solution, and only at this spot you will get chemical changes. And what this means is that you can actually just 3D print things at a micro scale. So it's a, like wow. a, it's a micro scale 3D printer. And I mean, I find this technique super interesting, but regrettably it doesn't really have the, like the nanoscale resolution we would need. Otherwise I would love to, love this, love to use this technique. If you Google a uh, two photon polymerization, I think if you can even get some images where they 3D printed the Eiffel Tower at the micron scale or something wow. like this. Like it's, awesome. it's super interesting. I think I'll add a link to that if anybody wants to check that out. <laughs> How will this device be used to clarify pathophysiological mechanisms that form part of a neurodegenerative disease? Okay, that's <laughs> a tongue twister. <laughs> so it's quite a bit of a tongue twister when I think about it. Yeah, pathophysiological and then neurodegenerative yeah, diseases. I mean. <laughs> um, so yeah, um, I mean, um, what we are actually doing with this nano, uh, nanofluidic device is we're getting some information about the size of some subcellular parts inside brain cells. And the reason why we want to do this specifically for neurodegenerative diseases or for example, Parkinson's disease is uh, that they've seen recently, I think last year or two years ago, that um, there are certain parts in the cell, for the mitochondria to be specific, uh, that vary in size depending on uh, your disease state. I mean, they have found some indication that this, this is the case, but to study these changes and to quantify them, it's quite um, difficult. I mean, you need very um, advanced tools, expensive equipment. It's not so straightforward. And the thing is, what we wanted to do with our device is we wanted to study this in a way that you can do it rapidly and cost effectively. You can just apply a droplet of a cell solution or just lysed cells, which are cells which are broken apart. And then that device that we are developing will give you some information about a very specific part inside those cells quite yeah. easily. Um, and what we are able, uh, what we want to do is actually study cells along different time points of uh, Parkinson-like cells 
to see how these sizes change. That we can say, okay, for example, if somebody has Parkinson's for, for, for one year or two years, at these time points, these are the crucial pathophysiological time points with respect to this one part in the cell. Of course, I mean, symptomatically, there are other things going around, uh, uh, well, happening, but we, with our device, we want to have a deeper dig into a very specific part of the cells. And of course, mm -hmm. I mean, you cannot do this, um, uh, you have to do this first in a model system. So we're using um, dopaminergic neurons, which are very specific neurons or very specific brain cells, which are affected by Parkinson's. But then we're using them on a lab scale, just in a cell culture. And then we're exposing them to Parkinson-like conditions. And then we, from the moment they exhibit the right markers, we then proceed to do experiments with them in our nanofluidic device. So, I mean, this is why I love this topic of the PhD I'm working on, right? I mean, it, it involves this nanofabrication, it involves grayscale lithography, it involves uh, biocompatibility, but also on the other hand, you've got cell cultures, you've got more fundamental biological research. I mean, there's quite a lot of aspects going it's on there. It's a lot. It's amazing, actually. And, and above all, you're actually then helping to treat this neurodegenerative disease that's really like affecting a lot of people. And it's, um, I don't think there's really an efficient treatment for that yet. Or no, really not know. really. So, so at the moment, if you have if Parkinson's, I mean, that, like I might be cutting around some corners here, but the main message is if you have Parkinson's, you know there's something wrong with your dopamine signaling, which is a certain mm -hmm. signaling pathway in your brain. And then the treatment, most often what they do is they give dopamine analog systemically. So you get pills or you get some things that you increase the dopamine content in your body ah, just okay. to increase this pathway, in, like the signaling pathway in the brain. Yeah, but this so is more like a symptomatic, symptoms. yeah, exactly, right. it's a symptomatic treatment. So the actual cause of it and the, the what actually can be done to address the cause, it's a bit unknown. This is really um, fantastic. I think it must be so fulfilling to be working in such various fields in one study <laughs> and like being able to touch on everything and become skilled in every aspect of it you know but I I, I, but it's also <laughs> it's a bit of a challenge to communicate sometimes because i mean in the sense you, I, like i am on this interface between all these different disciplines but the project partners are nece mm. not necessarily so when it comes down to like the actual physics of it or the biology of it i mean there's quite some um like there's a language barrier almost if you would say so it, it it does take some translating to to uh like sort of translate the physics to the biology and the biology to the yeah. physics side and how far are you with your phd at the moment uh so now actually i have to think about this i think yeah i'm two and a half years in now i think okay so i have yeah. one and a half year year left if is there anything else that you would like to add I think to be honest, maybe for your listeners, and I think maybe a message that they can take home with them as well is that polymers, I mean, it, it's it's applicable in a lot of fields. I mean, you can go, because everything I'm doing with this lithography as well, it's also in polymers. So the patterning step is in polymers, the device is in polymers, and it's it applied to actually neurodegenerative diseases. So I would say it's a quite versatile field, this, this polymer technology field. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's very true. That's why I love polymer science so much. And I really, I can feel your passion for it as well. It's palpable through the screen. Oh, <laughs> Thank you nice. so much. <laughs> no worries. Thank you for contributing to this episode and to the Polymer Science Podcast. I really appreciate it. It was great to have you on. Yeah, thank you for the invitation.
I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Please comment if you have any suggestions and let me know what you think about the episode. You can remember to share and subscribe. Thank you for listening.